me ask you to turn to Romans chapter 6, please, this morning. Romans chapter 6. One of the pivotal moments uh, for Martin Luther in coming to his conclusions was a visit he paid to Rome in which he was doing a pilgrimage, and uh, there was a set of stairways there, the Scala Sancta, that was given as uh, a way in which you could do penance, you could earn merit by by climbing up the uh, the stairs on your knees and kissing each step. And as he was doing that, he had already been wrestling with the theological truths that he was, and and essentially the battle in his mind was: is it is it by faith in Christ and Christ alone that we're saved, or is it a system that makes your salvation dependent on yourself? For him, it was as clear as by faith or by fear. All right? Do I? Do I keep working hard so that I don't have to fear condemnation? Or can I, by faith, rest in the work of Christ and be assured and confident of salvation? And all through chapter 5 we've looked at, the answer from the Apostle Paul is, it's by faith. That justification is a standing before God in which the righteousness of Jesus Christ is credited to you so that you can have peace with God. That you actually do not fear condemnation because Christ's righteousness is sufficient. And the reason why, though, the fear side of the equation has been so dominant and sometimes takes hold is because that's the way in which you can keep people under your rule. If you hand out salvation bit by bit based on the work or performance of the sinner, then the sinner is constantly pressed back to you. You are the conduit and you can hold over the head of the sinner the reality of their condemnation as a lever to keep them in check or in place. And that battle was the battle of the Reformation. Are we saved on the merits of Christ and therefore free from condemnation? Or is it a combination of Christ's merits and our merit, and we have to keep adding to it, and therefore we're not sure we're free from condemnation? We always have doubts about it because we're not sure if we've accumulated enough merit. And in fact, we, we are subject to penalty that would be purged away. And if we wanted, we could buy release for people who've already died. The indulgence system was that the penalty hadn't been completely paid. We can buy more merit so that then they can be freed. It was a system of fear that captured them. If you understand the gospel, you understand it's a system of faith and freedom that we actually have been set free from death, set free from condemnation, and free from the law which opens up the door to an accusation that could be made. That someone might say, what you're really talking about is going to produce sin and and rampant running away from obedience. Because if my sin has been all taken care of, then what's to keep me from sinning? What's what's to keep me from taking advantage of that freedom to live however I want? And that accusation was made throughout the Reformation, but it goes way back farther than that. It goes back to the first announcements of the gospel of grace. It's the kind of accusation that becomes the backdrop for the passage that Paul begins to write for us in Romans chapter 6. Look, if you would, please, begin in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? 
May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self or old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Notice verse one, because here's the question or rhetorical question that Paul asked, what shall we say then? And the then points back to the verses right before it in chapter 5, right? So to understand what his point is, you have to really listen to 520 and 21 again. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Because notice the language of verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So here comes the objection by false implication. Well, if sin increasing resulted in grace abounding even more, should we continue in sin? So that grace will abound even more? If sin produces grace, well then shouldn't we sin? That's sort of the underlying objection that was tossed in the Reformation and in fact seems to have been pointed at Paul. Go to chapter 3 and verse 8 because there's probably the backdrop again of this. He's talking about God's Truth and glory abounding. And then notice verse 8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that, say, that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. So, so it sounds like a, a recurring accusation against Paul was that Paul's message of justification which included freedom from the law, was being accused of being a sort of lawless pursuit of sin and evil. And Paul completely and flatly rejects that. Look at his answer in verse 2 of chapter 6. May it never be. Some of you may have older translations say, God forbid, which is... Uh, is sort of a dynamic equivalent because the word God is not in the text. It's simply saying this should never be the case. Right? May it never be that we would conclude the abundance of grace is encouraged by our choosing sin. Right? So why, why does he reject this so strongly? Well, that's what he begins to answer in chapter 6. And and specifically, in verse 2, he sort of gives us the, the, the overarching head of the first at least 14 verses, and that is that believers have died to sin, so they can no longer live in it. Notice he states it as a question, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or to put it in the positive statement, as I just did, believers have died to sin so they can no longer live in it. And he's going he's gonna to start unpack that. And, and obviously, just reading the first seven verses, you can see it, it's, it's, it's tight, right? But So I want us to see the big picture, and then we'll look down into it, right? There are two main purposes that he talks about in the work of Christ, his death and resurrection. Notice in verse 4, the second part of the verse says, so that as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, so God wants us to walk in newness of life because of what God has done for us through Christ. Then notice verse 6. 
knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So here's, here's really in a sense, he's answering the question, should, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? May it never be because we have died to sin. How can we live any longer in it? And then he starts to talk about the work of Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection and says two things come out of that to us. One is that we have been raised to walk in newness of life. Christ died and rose again so that we would live in newness of life. But also so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's what he says in verse 6. So those two things... Are, are crucial to what he's talking about. They're rooted in their conversion and union with Christ. And they need to see and understand that. They, they are no longer to be slaves to sin. They are to walk in newness of life. And notice, I, I point out the two so that's in verse 4 and verse 6, but also notice in verse 3, he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. So do you not know something? And then notice verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. So Paul immediately answers the question by appealing to things that they know. That they understand that there's truth that's rooted in the gospel that they've received so that they won't come to that false conclusion. All right? Their, their baptism identified them with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's verses 3 and 4. Right? You've been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death. And also that their crucifixion with Christ means their old life has been done away. Notice again verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him. So, so those two facts he wants to remind them of. Because, because the way they should understand the gospel and what's happened to them would lead them away from that false conclusion. Right? Because someone might just look at, well, justification means there's no more penalty for our sin, and, and justification came by grace, so we're, we're free. I mean, I'm joking and said before, I mean, used to, I remember in college, the song, uh, twist songs, and the one is free from the law, oh, happy condition. Right? The little tweak that people would put, now we can sin with easy remission. Right? That's sometimes the way that people talk. Well, hey, you know, we sin, but God forgives. That's his job, so it'll all be good. And so, so it becomes a kind of sloppy and permissive understanding of Christianity. So Paul draws them right back to the time where they came to Christ and said, listen, you know this, right? When you came to Christ, what happened then was something that radically changed you. Right? You died to sin. You were raised to walk in newness of life. And you know that your old self was crucified. Right? So he wants them to be rooted in those two truths so that they wouldn't come to that false conclusion. It is not that you go from fear to, to a life of recklessness. You don't go from living under the shadow of condemnation to running after sin. Now something else has happened. Something real in the work of Christ has, has taken place. They have been identified with Christ in His death and resurrection, and they have actually passed away, died in Christ and raised to newness of life. So now, let's, let's uh, dig in a little bit so we can make sure we don't misunderstand some of the language that's here. Notice in verses 3 and 4, 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So in verses 3 and 4, Paul brings their baptism into the equation, which, again, here's the part of the tension for us, right? Paul's writing this in the middle of the first century to people whose only understanding of Christian theology has come from Paul. And here we are 20 centuries later, and there's all kinds of divergent views about baptism and what baptism does. And so it might be easy for us to take our conception of baptism whatever it might be this morning, and read it back on the Paul's. But that's not the way it should go, right? It should go from, from the Scriptures to the way we think, not our past experience or religious traditions or liturgical rituals, and read it back onto the Bible. Right? And so, so for the Romans, Paul is starting with assumed common ground, Right? They're Christians, so they've been baptized. Because the idea of an unbaptized Christian is really sort of an oxymoron in terms of the New Testament. Remember what Jesus' commission was? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. From the day of Pentecost, the proclamation of the gospel called for faith in Christ that was given evidence of in baptism. That is, you identified with Christ. You were baptized into his name. You owned Christ by identifying with him in baptism. So what Paul is referring to here is is not so much the specific ritual as it is their conversion. You you became followers of Christ. You identified with Christ in baptism. And when you became a Christian, you were actually joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. You were baptized into his death. You were buried with him into death. And you were raised in newness of life by the resurrection of Christ. That's the, the, the whole, what I would say is the picture of baptism is the symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the believer's participation in it. That's why we are immersed in water as a picture of death and burial and raised up to new life. It's because if we've trusted in Christ, that has actually happened to us by the work of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that we are baptized into the body by the Spirit. Water baptism is the picture and symbol of what God has done for believers on the basis of faith. The Spirit has joined them to Christ. They are united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So that they now have had the penalty of sin paid through the death, and they've been given life through the resurrection. It's rooted in what Christ does, and that's clear as you go through the rest of the chapter because Paul only mentions baptism in 3 and 4. The rest of the time, he's he's talking all about Christ and what Christ has done and has accomplished. The focus isn't really on baptism, it's on Christ. Christ's death, Christ's resurrection. What he's wanting them to see is that when they came to Christ, they identified with Christ, they took his name upon them by submitting to baptism. They became followers of Jesus Christ. They received the benefits of what Christ had accomplished. Because spiritually, they've been joined to Christ. Because look at the emphasis in union on this passage. Notice in verse 3, we're baptized into his death. In verse 4, buried with him through baptism into death. 
And then in verse 5, we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. In verse 6, crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be destroyed. And that keeps on through the rest of the passage. You can just see it in verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, all right, so the whole point that Paul is focusing on is union with Jesus Christ, that we actually have been joined to Jesus Christ and therefore his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. So we have died to sin, and we are alive to God. That we are freed from sin, and no longer slaves to it. Now, why, why can Paul talk like that? I think the key, one of the keys for us to understand here is that when Paul is talking about sin throughout this passage, he's presenting it as a realm in which we could live, or a power under which we could live. Let me, let me show you in the passage, not just the one we're looking at this morning, but the rest of it, how that fits. And, and before we look at those, uh, this corresponds to what we saw all throughout chapter 5. Remember in chapter 5, it was, you're in Adam, or you're in Christ. And at the end of that whole discussion... Chapter 5, verse 21, look what it says about sin. As sin reigned in death. Okay, so here's the key we need to think about. We, we personally commit sins, but he's talking about something here. He's, he's almost personifying sin. He's saying sin reigns in death. So the picture is like sin's a king that's reigning through death. And that sets, that sets the table for chapter 6. He's going to keep talking about sin as a power under which someone may live or a realm within which someone may live. Notice in verse 6, sin can have slaves. Last part of the verse, so we no longer be slaves to sin. That same language is used in verse 16 when it talks about you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, that is, so you're a slave of sin resulting in death. And verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, that is, you were under the mastery of sin. It is also, sin is presented as something from which you can be freed. Look at verse 7. He who has died is freed from sin. Verse 18 says, having been freed from sin. Verse 22 says, but now having been freed from sin. Verse 16 describes it as, or verse 14 describes it as a master. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. And as something that can reign. Notice verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. So here's, it's really crucial to understand what he's talking about here. So sin is a realm in which you can live or a power under which you live. Right? And that's if true if you are in Adam. Right? Because all the way back in chapter 12, here's what happened. Sin came into the world through Adam. Death came into the world through sin. Sin spread to all because in Adam all sinned. Here's this category. Right? So when he starts to talk about you being united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection or your old self being crucified so that you are freed from sin, you are no longer its slave. He's talking about a massive transfer in terms of where your identity is, who, under whose authority you live, and what's the dominating master of your life. Right? You are no longer slaves to sin, but you've been made to walk in newness of life. 
You have, you are no longer under the master of sin because you're not under the law, but under grace. There's two different worlds and realms and died to sin. Right? You died to sin means you have been rescued from its rule. Look at the language in verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. So, I'm born in this world. Adam is my representative. I am in Adam. And as long as I am in Adam, I am under sin. I'm alive to sin. Sin is the master of my life. I'm a slave to it. The only way I will be set free from that is if actually I die. Right? I have to, I have to have a death happen. And, and that's what he's saying happened when you put your faith in Christ, your death that he's talking about, was actually wrapped up in Christ so that his death became yours and his life became yours. So now you are dead to sin, but you are alive to God. Something has happened to you that moved you from the realm of sin to under the lordship of Christ, that has taken you from being a slave to sin to sin no longer being your master. And that's the work of Jesus Christ. And once you identify with Christ, that is you believe in him, confess him as Lord with your mouth, as chapter 10 would say, believing that God raised him from the dead. By faith, you are joined to Christ. And these things are now true of you which were not true of you before that, right? Something has happened where God has made you alive to himself and has made you dead to sin. Understanding this is important because there are, there are folks who would come to a passage like this and they'd say, so you're dead to sin, that means you'll never sin again. Or... Sometimes they'll, they'll sort of tease out the analogy and say, so a corpse doesn't feel anything, so you'll no longer feel the attraction of sin, or you'll never feel the, the, the power of sin in your life. That's, that's not the point that Paul's making. Paul's saying there was a realm in which you lived where you were under the power of sin. It was the realm you lived in, and it was the mark of your life, which was actually a life leading to death, he says at the end of the chapter. But you've been moved out of that neighborhood. <laughs> right? You live in a different realm now. You have been made alive to God, and you've died to sin. But he clearly doesn't mean you will never sin again, because I actually read, it says, do not, do not, uh, yield your bodies as instruments, right? He, he's going to say, don't yield yourself to be a slave of sin. So what he's talking about is there has been a fundamental change in who you are if you're in Christ, but that's not going to be fully and finally realized until the resurrection. Notice in verse 6, he points toward that future. Look at verse 5, I'm sorry. Chapter 5, and verse 6. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So there's something future that's promised to us in the resurrection that should affect our stance in the present. What God did for me when I came to Christ was change fundamentally changed my relationship to sin. It's no longer my master. Christ is my master. So that ought to be reflected in the way I live. And it's rooted in the power of Christ's resurrection, but also tied to the promise of my own resurrection. 
Both of those things are true in this passage. The power of Christ's resurrection is what enables me to, to do battle with sin and actually win. The promise of Christ's resurrection, of my resurrection, is the thing that energizes and motivates me to recognize I don't have to yield to these temptations. Let me show you those two things. Go to chapter one of the book of Ephesians, please. Paul is praying for the believers at Ephesus, and he's listing a series of, of things that he wants them to understand and recognize. And notice in verse 19, the third of these. He wants them to, to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Do you see the connection in verse 19? Paul wants them to know what the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. All right, so I'm, a, I'm here this morning as someone who's trusted in Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. I want you to understand how surpassing the greatness of his power is toward you as a believer. And then he tells me an idea about how surpassingly great that is. That's the same power that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and exalted him to the right hand and brought everything into subjection unto him. That same power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power that has operated in the believer to give them new life. Okay, it's, it's resurrection power. So when Paul's saying here, when you were buried with him in death and raised to walk in newness of life, he's saying, listen, the resurrection of Christ is the power that accomplishes that. And if, if we have that relationship, then there is coming a day when we will be raised as well. And, and that, that ties in, go to Romans chapter 8, because here's where it starts to affect our practical outworking of, of the battle with sin. Look at Romans chapter 8. And start in verse 9, please. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so let me just, let me just uh, show the connections here, right? Everyone, everyone who has Christ in them has been born of the Spirit. All right, so if you don't have the Spirit, you don't have Christ. That's verse 9. And if Christ is in you, there's this reality the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive. So you have spiritual life. Then verse 11, and if you have this spiritual life, then you will actually have life given to your mortal body, that's the resurrection in verse 11. Okay, so you came to life spiritually by the work of the Spirit. You will be given resurrection life. Right? The Spirit has come to dwell in you. He's the down payment of your ultimate inheritance of resurrection. In verse 23 and 24, he talks about that being the redemption of our bodies. Okay, so there's coming the fullness of salvation at the resurrection. Well, that's great, Paul. What's the big deal about that? Well, look, look what he says in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Right? Think about that. The promise of resurrection 
means we have no longer any obligation to live according to the flesh. Right? The satisfaction of sinful desires have no obligation on us. They have actually no power over us because we've been promised a resurrection. Everything, every, let me, I'm, I'm hopefully this, this whole thing might be, I'm tying all kinds of things here, but just step back over here to the realm of sin. Okay? I'm dead under sin. I'm living completely for the gratification of temporal desires in this world. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. I'm living as if this is all there is, and I am living to satisfy the impulses of my desire. Everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. I live life being poked by temptation and longing to satisfy the desires that come from it. Because outside of Christ, I live with a ceiling here. There's nothing more than what I can see and feel and enjoy in the passing pleasures of sin. God is excluded. Eternity is outside of the picture I live for here and now, satisfying the desires of my appetites. That's that's what the lost condition is. That's why sin is the master. The moment you trust Christ, something fundamental has happened. You have died to sin. And you are alive to God. You now are no longer governed in a world that has a ceiling that excludes God or has a wall that cuts you off from eternity. You've had the ceiling blown open. You are in relationship to the risen Lord. The wall has been knocked down so that off to your side you can see the promise of resurrection. And the passing pleasures of sin become minimized by the lasting promises of the resurrection. I now, like Hebrews 11, right? I endure as seeing him who is invisible. I have respect for the recompense of the reward. So I'm willing to endure and suffer reproaches with Christ. That is, I may, I may have to say no to a bunch of stuff that over here I said yes to. And when I said yes to it, later in the chapter it is, I made myself a slave of it. And it actually is things that bring me shame now. But when I came to Christ, I actually became, say, a, a person who says yes to Christ and recognizes the outcome of that is eternal life. Something far better than anything that could be offered to me in this world, in this realm, under this power. Right. So it's the power of the resurrection which enables me to live this way, and the promise of resurrection which motivates me to live this way. That's what Christ does for us, and it works in that way. So here's Paul trying to draw us to the centrality of the work of Christ. Chapter 5 is justification. The work of Christ delivers us from the penalty of sin. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. We have had the righteousness of Christ credited to our account, and we are free from its debt and penalty. But that does not mean that we should live in it because the work of Christ not only frees us from the penalty of sin, it frees us from the power of sin. And God is at work, in fact, to eliminate the pollution of sin in our lives. That's what we call sanctification. The process by which God is graciously working in us to conform us to the image of Christ, which means eliminating the power and pollution of sin. We're no longer under its slavery. It is no longer 
our master. We are actually able to walk in new, a new kind of life, a life that's different than what had preceded. We're set apart to God through our union with Christ. We're made his and we're made new. Sin is no longer the master and we are no longer to yield to its rule, right? We shouldn't be comfortable. In fact, I would argue we can't be comfortable if we've actually been made alive. Right? We, we, we cannot be at home in sin. How can we who died to sin continue in it? Verse 2 says, something has happened to us that makes us recognize that if we are starting to live in that realm, we're out of place. That's not where we belong. The power and promise of resurrection sets us free from the tyranny of the old man. We, and this is the key to understanding the old self crucified, who I was before I came to Christ is dead. Our old self was crucified. I am a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're not old and new man at the same person time. You're not old self and new self at the same time. You are one person. If you're outside of Christ, you're an Adam. That's the old self. If you've come in faith to Christ, the old self has been crucified with him. You are a new person in Christ. You are different than what you were before you knew Christ. You are a new creature in Christ. And we have to recognize that that's the shift that must be seen because the only way somebody would justify magnifying sin is if they still took pleasure in that master. If they still thought that's the realm in which they lived. But Paul's saying that's not the way it works. When we come to Christ... When we trust in him and we confess that openly through baptism, we are confessing that Christ died, was buried, and rose again so that we might have life, that we might walk in newness of life, that we would no longer be the slaves to sin. It is at the heart of the gospel. If you've trusted in Christ, a massive, major shift has taken place from the realm of sin to the realm of life. You have died and been raised. If you are not the old, I mean, if that's the case, then you are not the old you, but a new creation. And knowing why Christ died and rose again, so that we would no longer be slaves, but would be free to walk in newness of life. Knowing that, right? Verse 3, knowing Verse, or no, in verse 6, knowing. Knowing those things should control your understanding of and response to sin. All right, so I'm going to still have fights with sin. And we'll see that as we go through these chapters. But now I look at it very differently. I see it in relationship to what Christ has done. And I see it in relationship to what he's done in me and for me. I don't look at sin the same way any longer. I know that I have died to sin and have been made alive in Christ. So I look at sin now, not as, as something that is at home in my life, but something at, that I ought to be at battle with, that I should not be surrendering to, that I'm not comfortable with, because sin is an enemy. Sin reigns in death. Grace reigns in righteousness unto life. What, what grace should produce is a response to God that wants to obey him, that wants to be an instrument of righteousness. And that's the gospel. Christ died to remove sin's penalty and to set sinners free from its power. Right? It's not just a head game. It's not just some kind of abstraction where on the legal books, I'm now no longer under condemnation 
and it doesn't have any ramifications in my life. The work of God is that plus what he's done in the heart and the soul. That he has actually changed us so that we want to obey him. We want to live in righteousness rather than sin. This text is liberating in that it calls us to recognize that if we're in a fight with sin, sin will not win if we're in Christ. Right? And that's sometimes where the fight can be. We're over here and we, we know we've trusted in Christ, but in our minds, sometimes we think we're still locked in. Right? We think we're still trapped. We think we're still under its mastery. And as long as we think that, we'll be, we'll be under motivated because we'll be hopeless. Right? We actually should be coming in from the stance of God has worked so powerfully in me and has given promises to me which transcend anything that this sin offers and it sustains and strengthens and sanctifies us. If you're in Christ, sin is not your master. It will be your constant enemy and fight, but it is not your master. You should be turning away from sin. You should be growing in Christ in ways that are putting to death the sin that is, is, is uh, nipping at your heels, so to speak. You need to fight the fight, and you can fight the fight in confidence because of what Christ did. Not because of your own unaided ability, but because in Christ you have that Hope, you have that strength because Christ died and rose again. And that's the gospel. But, but also recognize here that that is for those who have identified with Christ. It's faith in Christ alone that saves and embracing Christ alone as the one who can rescue you. And that kind of faith, genuine faith, identifies with him. Paul could write to the Roman believers knowing that they had clearly confessed their faith in Christ because they had heard the call of discipleship. They identified with Christ by being baptized in his name. It wasn't like a, well, yeah, I want to get to heaven, but that whole follow Jesus stuff could be later. It wasn't, I just want to get out of hell ticket, so I'll pray this prayer. No, it was Christ. You're choosing Christ or sin. You're embracing Him as the only hope in life and death. And Paul knew that they had done that. They had trusted in Christ like that. And because of that, he'd say, don't you realize what that means for you? Right? So I'd say to you this morning, if you... Hopefully I can say it graciously, all right? But And if you want me to unpack it a little bit in gracious kindness, I do that. But, but don't buy the watered-down version of Christianity that dominates the American culture. That you're a Christian just because you go to a Christian church. Or you're a Christian because somebody did some ritual for you. Or you're a Christian because you're not a Hindu or not a Buddhist. Right? No, being in Christ means you have come to acknowledge him as Lord and confess him as such, 10-9. Rooted in a deep heart belief that Christ died and rose again as the payment for sin that is needed by all humans because we are all sinners. Have you come to rest in Christ alone? Have you received him as your savior? The testimony of that is that you've openly identified with him. You've confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord. And, and that's the key here, is that this work of God to take us from 
slaves to sin to being free in Christ is a real work of God in the heart that demonstrates itself with the confession, the identification with Christ. You've owned him as your Lord because you've seen what a great Lord and Savior he is. Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you for sending your son so we might have life through him. And we thank you, Lord, that that life will be for all of eternity. We will enjoy fellowship with you, even as the choir sang, that our God will dwell among us again. We look forward to that, but we also know that that life begins at the new birth, that we are made alive in Christ, that we confess him as our Savior, believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, and you give life right then. We are made new in Christ. Sin is no longer our master. So we would never, never think, well, grace means I can sin. We would actually think grace means I've died to sin. I've been made alive to Christ. I live in the hope of the resurrection, guaranteed by the resurrection of my Lord and Savior. Lord, please give encouragement to believers who may be fighting battles with sin, that there is a victory purchased by Christ. Lord, give encouragement in knowing that, that we will one day enjoy the fullness of this in a life that is full of your glory demonstrated in the resurrection. But also, Lord, awaken hearts and minds to the importance of this truth, that there must be some real experience of this new birth, not just a, a, a external formality of Christianity, but the real effect of it in the heart and life that brings freedom in Christ. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen.